You're listening to the Mindful Psychology Podcast, a podcast designed to explore mindfulness, psychology, neuroscience, and various aspects of holistic health. My name is Jen. I'm your host. I'm also a therapist, an educator, and a yoga teacher. Join me and brilliant guests as we explore various topics and offer you actionable steps so that you can be informed and intentional about your health and well-being. Now sit back, relax, maybe take a notebook out, and let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Mindful Psychology Podcast. My name is Jen. I'm your host. And today we're joined by a very special guest. Kaya, why don't you go ahead and, well, first of all, thank you for joining me. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Jen. It's nice to be with you. Um, Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody what you do and who you are and how you got into the work that you're doing and all of that? Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I refer to myself as a yoga educator these days. Um, I am trained as a yoga therapist and an Ayurvedic practitioner and in what I call the full spectrum of the Vedic tradition. So Sanskrit and um, Vedic astrology and Vedic architecture and uh, Vedanta philosophy, Tantra philosophy, all of those things. Um, And I presently work online. (laughs) Um, And I teach programs for um, long-time dedicated yoga practitioners, yoga teachers, or what I would call mature practitioners of yoga and mature seekers. And what I mean by that is you could be any age, but people that are really seeking some depth uh, of knowledge and depth of practice um, that's beyond sort of something that has to do with fitness. Um, that's really about true deep healing and life transformation and inner illuminative experience. Um, so I teach programs that are uh, emphasizing yogic philosophy as well as sort of practical yoga trainings and things like yoga nidra and yoga therapy. And I also, um, teach asana. So I teach a very slow, what I call a soft form of yoga that's therapeutic and gentle and all about softening and releasing and letting go and sort of revealing uh, the wellness and uh, illumination that's already there within. And so I teach that to to anyone. I have a membership program where people can um, practice with me live or practice by recordings. Um, So that's what I do now. Um, And it all kind of started quite young for me in a sense, looking back, as I think many of us find, we look back and we see those seeds were planted quite early. I was always seeking to understand what is the root cause of suffering and the cause of happiness or the potential for happiness. And that led me to university and studying sociology and cultures and traveling and when I was supposed to go get my PhD in sociology, um, a little bit before that, I discovered Vedic philosophy um, with a professor. So we were reading ancient texts of India and meditating as our homework, and I fell in love. And I found that I was getting such deeper answers to those deep questions that I had had. Um, And so I abandoned academia and went off to delve into yoga and studied with 
my teachers for intensively for 12 years, but that all I've been teaching now for 20 years and I'm always studying with teachers, but there was an intense 12 year period of just full-time study with teachers. So yeah. That's amazing. I love that so much. That's, so, <laughs> <laughs> that's really great. And I'm curious to know uh, what your take is on yoga and how it can be applied to everyday life. I know a lot of the time people don't see yoga as as anything that can be applied in everyday life or outside of the yoga class. But how, what are some ways that yoga can be applied to everyday life as in yoga philosophy and yoga, um, other parts of yoga than asana? Yeah, so yoga is such a funny word because we use it in a myriad of ways in, modern, in the modern world. And actually even in the yoga tradition in the Sanskrit, yoga means something different depending on the context. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, let's see where to go with that so yoga if we put it as simply as possible in the terms that i think you and i are talking about when we say the word yoga yoga essentially means a means to self-knowledge or a means to self-discovery and here self really means capital s self <laughs> mm -hmm. um, meaning the, the the innermost self of the self um, your true nature. So yoga is the means to discovering that. Um, but how it applies to everyday life is that this is where you are, is in a life. And so your life itself, your relationships, your work, your day-to-day -day life, how you eat, how you sleep, um, what your viewpoints are, all of those have the potential to be part of that means for self-discovery. Um, there's a tantric saying that is, the ground on which you fall is the very ground you have to use to push yourself up. Mm. And so in that way, your life itself can be a means to self-discovery once you have um, certain viewpoints on board. And that's sort of speaking kind of ideologically, but in terms of practicality, the whole yoga tradition or what I would call the Vedic tradition more accurately has all of these tools for life that help support that sort of greater process or purpose like Ayurveda, which is addressing your lifestyle and how you eat and how you sleep and how you care lovingly for the body that you've been given this life. Um, and Vedic astrology, which is used to help you make decisions so that your choices and your actions are in line with, with, your, with your karma or your purpose. Um, so there's a lot of practical sort of limbs of the Vedic tradition to deal with your life so that your life is not in the way of your spiritual growth, but actually supporting the process of spiritual growth. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you said that. I really like the way you said that. Um, and and uh, uh, one topic or one of the topics that I really want to get into that we were talking about too off air is Vedic psychology and how you kind of unpacked that for me before. And would you be able to do that for now for everybody else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as we were saying before, there are so many different beautiful frames in the Vedic tradition to help us understand um, our minds, our lives, our relationships, our viewpoints, our thought patterns. Um, there are lots of different frames that have different utility depending on what we're dealing with. One of the aspects of my work that I didn't mention 
um, perhaps because I only do this with a small number of people, is technically called Vedic counseling. And in that context, when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with people, depending on what's coming up for them, I might use um, a different frame to look at. Is this something that we have to look at the relationship between the subconscious and the unconscious mind? Are we talking about ancestral patterns with the Vedic tradition um, deals with? Are we looking at um, a split between dealing with your relative life and your um, spiritual pursuit? Yes. Um, and maybe that's a place to look because we were, as I just said, your life could be um, in the way of spiritual growth, seemingly, mm -hmm. or your life itself can be fodder for spiritual growth. So maybe that would be a good place to kind of start yes, talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in the, there are different uh, viewpoints within what we might call yoga or the Vedic tradition. So I'm just going to share the viewpoints that I've been gifted by my teacher and, and we'll understand that there are different ways that this is looked at. But the viewpoint that I was given is very holistic. It sees that all of life is, comes from and is made of the same essential source. We can call it Brahma, we can call it consciousness, we can call it divine. And so um, as a person, you yourself are that divine presence, that consciousness itself. And we have a name for that uh, in Sanskrit. We have lots of different names, but one of them is Paramatma. Paramatma. Atma means self and Parama means supreme. So you as a being are that supreme self. Simultaneously, you are an individual being with a body, mind, personality, history, ancestry, idiosyncrasies, likes and dislikes, and so on. And that's called Jivatma. Jiva means sort of individual and Atma means self. So you are both this individual self and the Supreme Self at the same time. And where we tend to have a problem <laughs> in life is when we are splitting that and fixating either on my body, mind, personality, life, failure, successes, and ignoring the, the deeper reality, the more fundamental supreme reality that is the self of the self, right? Then we're missing something. There's a hole in life because we're just fixating on what we call the relative level of reality. I'll be happy when I achieve that. I'll be happy when I get that. I'll be happy when I eat that chocolate. I'll be happy when I, and I won't be happy if any of that, you know, comes to an end or is destroyed or disturbed. So being entirely dependent on this sort of relative seeable level of, of reality, that causes us a great deal of pain, right? Because when I pursue anything in the world, expecting that the people and objects of the world, we expect all of that to make us happy, we inevitably are unhappy, right? Because we don't get what we want, we're unhappy. We get what we want, but then it is destroyed or comes to an end as everything that is manifest eventually does and we're unhappy. Or we get what we want and it makes us feel good for a while, but then that feeling wanes and now we want something else. So that constant feeling of deficit uh, is sort of the pain of the human condition we can call. Mm -hmm. And the deficit is because we're not actually um, working on the discovery of that paramatma, that supreme self. So that's one sort of side of human pain. Mm 
Should I keep going? <laughs> yes, no, please do. Sorry, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so we have we have a tendency. Many people have a tendency to fixate on that relative level of reality. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of it, we have there are fewer of these people, but we see them more amongst spiritual seekers and yoga people and religious people and so on. That there's an ignoring of relative reality of the body, mind, personality, relationships, responsibilities, even a distaste for those things, right? And a fixation on spiritual pursuit. Now, either way, we're in pursuit because that's the problem of the human condition. Mm-hmm. That we're either pursuing the world or we're pers- pursuing God, divinity, spirituality, um, and so on. So, in that case, we kind of tend to see something what we might call um, spiritual bypass, right? Oh, yes. I, I ignore the world. I ignore my life. I have a distaste for my responsibilities, and I fixate on what I imagine to be spiritual life. And that also causes me a great deal of suffering because, of course, my life is suffering. And how can you actually grow spiritually if you're doing damage (laughs) in your relationships, in your life, to your body, and so on. So in a sense, in terms of Vedic psychology, while I said there's so many frames, we kind of just dove in at the deep end. That's sort of the most fundamental human problem is this split, wherein I'm either pursuing success, objects, people, accolades, and so on in the world, or I'm rejecting the world, I'm ignoring my responsibilities, and I'm in hot pursuit of God, divinity, whatever you want to call that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yoga's true remedy for this is to actually say, you actually, your viewpoint is wrong. (laughs) 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 We have to fix your viewpoint which is that there's not actually a split. You're relating to the world as though it's either or. When in fact, the teaching is, the viewpoint is, that everything that is, is only that consciousness. So in fact, while you're pursuing God, but rejecting the world and rejecting your body, your relationships, your responsibilities. In fact, you're rejecting that very divinity because everything is only made of that. Right. There are these beautiful metaphors um, in the Vedic tradition, in yogic texts that are used because this is sort of my, I mean, it's literally meant to be mind blowing, right? This is meant to deconstruct. (laughs) (laughs) And And yet we can sort of hold it off in sort of an intellectualized way. And so the metaphors are used to kind of bring our emotions on board and make it really understandable in a very direct way. So the most commonly used um, metaphor is called cup clay. Have you ever heard this cup clay metaphor before? No, I haven't. Okay. So um, when I teach this, I usually, when I teach this and people can see me, I usually hold up a clay cup. You know, I have a lot of, we have a lot of these little um, clay cups from China. I actually have one in my hand right now. So um, you can imagine that I'm holding up a clay cup, all right? And I hold up this cup and I ask everybody, what is this? And nine out of 10 people will say, it's a cup. 
and the 10th person will say it's a clay cup, right? So everyone says it's a cup. So yes, this, this cup in my hand is a cup. It's functioning as a cup. There's tea in it, which I'm drinking. I can hold it. I can touch it. I can break it. I can wash it. It is a real cup. But now what if I say this is clay in my hand? Is that also true? And everybody, of course, says, yeah, of course, yeah, Kai, it's a clay cup. Of course, it's clay. Sure. <laughs> so I say, now, what is more true about this object in my hand? That it's clay or that it is a cup? What is more true? Well, what's more true about it is that it's clay. That's the fundamental truth of the cup, right? If I smash the cup against the wall, the cup is over. There's no more cup, but what remains? Clay. Clay. Before it was a cup, what was it? It was clay. Yes. <laughs> so the fundamental truth of the cup is that it is clay. But it is still, for this moment, for this time period, for a time, it is a cup. So this is us. You are a person with a body, mind, personality, responsibilities, likes and dislikes, relationships, and so on. Mm -hmm. That is true about you. And it has to be tended to. You have to tend to your life in the way that I tend to the cup. I wash it when it's dirty. I keep it on a shelf where it won't get cracked, right? Mm -hmm. I utilize it. I tend to the cup. You tend to the needs of the body, mind, life, and so on. And yet simultaneously, we fundamentally recognize that the truth of the cup is that it's clay. So when the cup breaks, eventually, it's not a death, right? Clay mm -hmm. remains. And so that is life. You, your fundamental truth is that you are consciousness. So when, when you start to recognize, when your viewpoint begins to shift and you say, yes, my body, mind, life is real. I am a cup. But the fundamental truth of me is that I am clay. I am that supreme consciousness. So though painful things happen in life and loss happens and things that we prefer not to happen happen and some truly grievesome things happen, or sometimes we run out of chocolate and it's not that bad, but it's still a bummer. Right? <laughs> those things happen to us at the cup level. Yeah. As you start to more and more shift your viewpoint to see, oh, but I am clay. In fact, I am that consciousness. Then the gains and losses at the cup level are not as destructive. We can view them and say, yes, that's painful or yes, that's pleasurable. But either way, I am consciousness. And then we are able to lovingly tend to our lives and our responsibilities and our bodies, but without being as um, compulsive, <laughs> without being as fixated, we can just tend to it. And that's sort of the fundamental sort of human problem from the yogic viewpoint and the fundamental uh, human sort of revelation or potential. Yeah. Yeah. That made such, that made so much sense. And you explained it so well as well, actually. I felt like you were there. I felt like I could see you holding the cups. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little brown cup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that made so much sense. And again, going back to what we had talked about before and like how this translates in real life and how we tend to become, yeah, very obsessive, very attached to things that 
are what they are and we're always in the pursuit for more or different or well now I have it so or I'll be happy when or you know I'll be able to calm down when I'll be able to take a vacation when all those things we're always saying things like that um, but it's interesting to see it's interesting to look at it from this angle and to see what that means and what that can look like in your life so I like that and um, if anyone's wondering what that could look like in their lives so how can they find that and you had said again this was all fair but you had said that it's not so much about a balance between the two between the the, the relating and these like the seeking supreme and seeking the relating world um, but it was, it was not about balancing the two extremes but rather having them meet and creating a whole and I really liked that you said that and also wanting to apply it now to everyday life. So if someone's thinking, well, what does it mean then? Like, how do I find a way to be whole or a way to even be balanced when we do have things to do or we do have responsibilities, um, but that I'm not supposed to attach to it. Like, I know that that idea seems to be difficult I mean, and it is difficult for humans and for, for us to understand how do I invest and tend to and care for and not be attached or not be fixated. Right. Yeah, it all sounds yeah, it sounds fine, Ty. It all sounds good and it makes sense, but now what? <laughs> and it's true and it's I mean, even in therapy, right? Like, okay, let's try to observe our thoughts, but somebody is thinking, no, I'm just thinking this, right? Like it's normal to find it really difficult to separate ourselves from it. Um, exactly. No, absolutely. And this is what I love about yoga as well, is that it's so mystical, but it's simultaneously so practical. And so I'm joking, but really that now what question is actually embedded in the yogic text. So the yogic text will say, you know, you are the self of the self. And then the student says, uh, okay, how do I, but, but that's not my experience. What do I do to discover that? And we constantly are saying, okay, that makes sense. But now what, what do I do with that? Which is exactly what you're doing. So um, one thing is to, if I can go back to the cut clay for a moment, in terms of the split, first of all. So one of the things that's so great about that analogy is you cannot split the cup from the clay, right? Mm -hmm. There is no part of that cup that isn't clay, yeah. Yeah. right? And so that's why I say this is about a holistic viewpoint and about seeing all of life as whole, as opposed to what people will call, you know, we have work-life balance and we have you know, all these different things we're trying to balance in life. And so then people say, I have, mundane, I have my mundane life and I have my spiritual life and I need to balance them. When we're saying, well, the cup, you can't balance the cupness of the clay on the one side with the clayness of the cup on the other side. It is only both all the time. Mm -hmm. So... So that's what I mean by shifting your viewpoint is that it's not about the cup doesn't have to become clay. Like, oh, well, now I have to, now I have to become consciousness, right? And what do I do? It is what I say, a shift in viewpoint. In a, in a single moment when I said, what's more true about this, that it's cup or that it's clay, we very quickly go, oh, yeah, the truth of that object is that it is clay. Very easy to see with a clay cup. Much more compounded when we try to do it with ourselves. Clearly, it's much easier said than done. So how do we do this with ourselves? There are many different ways, but ultimately this is what the various methods of yogic practice, and I don't just mean poses, of course, all of the methods of yogic practice are actually meant to deconstruct the notion that I am the cup, right? Um, and so one way is by studying yogic texts, which teach and explain that. And we just literally 
hearing that explanation again and again, it starts to become our reality. Not like you're convincing yourself, but you just continually have these aha moments mm -hmm. in which a wrong viewpoint simply falls away or gets deconstructed. So one method is truly to study texts and teachings with it with a teacher who knows what they're talking about ideally hopefully necessarily that in itself is considered a yogic practice it's not an intellectual practice it is a it is a deep spiritual practice and it helps you with your life um, one text in the text in particular that i emphasize is the bhagavad-gita because that is a text that emphasizes the teachings that i'm describing for householding people what we say that means people with worldly responsibilities so that text in particular is one among a few that is one method. The study of that text with a teacher is a method of experiencing this in our lives. It actually gives the mystical teachings as well as practical, what do you do with it, which, I, which I'll share some practicalities. Another example of a practice would be certain yogic practices that are, and this is my viewpoint, okay, practices that are not about striving, not about accomplishing something, not about pushing and working the body and accomplishing a shape, but pose asana yogic practices that are about releasing striving, letting go, peeling away effort, because that's our very problem, right? That constant hot pursuit. So we bring that into our yoga practice, that's a problem. So instead, softening, peeling away, letting go, and then being aware of who am I? when the striving lets go. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that revelation process is very readily available when we're guided in that way, because it is your very nature in the way that it was so obvious that the truth of the cup is clay. If you've ever done a yoga practice or yoga nidra, uh, yogic relaxation is something that's a lot of people have experienced, um, or just the shavasana, say at the end of a yoga class, where they get a taste of this. When you experience even a few minutes, if not longer, a very deep letting go, and then you come out of it, and you take a moment and pause and name your experience or recognize, oh, who am I in this moment free of striving? That gives you a taste. So one of the things I recommend to my students is when they come out of um, or are in the midst of a process, a practice that gives them that very deep sense of letting go and ease from effort and softness, that you pause and notice and name the experience, like name how you feel. In other words, um, someone might have that experience and they, they give it a name and they'll say, I feel peaceful or I feel expansive. Mm -hmm. or I feel endless, edgeless, um, open, happy. And these are all different names that give sort of a taste of the clay level. And so this is one kind of practical piece of advice is when you have that experience of letting go, then you're tasting yourself. You're tasting that, that you are that consciousness and you name it, you recognize it, you name it. And that helps it leave an imprint which we do all the time, right? We have no problem naming all of our other experiences <laughs> when we're angry, when we're in pain, when we're struggling, when we're striving, and all of that is fine and well to name as well. But we tend not to name when we are feeling, you know, gratitude or safety or 
softness or openness. So we name it, it leaves an imprint. And for those who don't practice yoga, uh, another place that we all get that is when you wake up in the morning after a good night's sleep and you're still just very relaxed in your bed. And before all of the problems of your day and your life have entered into your mind, there's that little, this is why people like to hit the snooze button because they want to stay in that zone. So when you're in that zone, when you wake up in the morning, then really pause and name it and let it leave an imprint. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm in one right now. No, but yeah. <laughs> honestly, that was so calming and that made so much sense. I really do feel like even if you don't practice yoga, or even if you don't have a, if you couldn't relate to that part, that it still, it still makes sense. The whole thing was practical to me, honestly, it made, it made so much sense. And, um, and I wanted to say something uh, you had said, uh, the part about revealing and about peeling away at the effort and at the uh, peeling away at the pursuit. Um, I think this is one thing that's really hard for people to let go of, I mean, myself included, you know, um, for us to let go of. And it's hard to just say, you know, what is there at the end when all of that is, is no longer, or when, when, when my cup breaks, um, it's hard to not only feel that, but to feel okay with the fact that the cup can break. You know what I'm saying? Like it's for us to think of that. Um, and I feel like when you think about it this way and you have this supportive knowledge and, and approach, I feel like it can make it less scary. It can make it easier to let go and to imagine yourself without all of that stuff, not because you're going to lose it or it's, it's lost or gone, or it's really just observing yourself. And I like that your approach wasn't so much about, um, well, what, what would you do if everything fell away and you lost everything? Cause that's not a calming way to right. connecting to consciousness, right? Um, like, <laughs> look, make sure you have a backup plan. Cause everything might go to, you know, that's not what you're trying to say. You're saying that there's, that it all exists at once. Like you can, and now you're a cup, but you're always still clay. You can also be, and what, another thing I really liked that you said was that this, my, my life balance, my work balance, my, or my work life, my personal life, my relationships, my this, my that, and trying to find a work life balance when actually you're still, you're still cup throughout, you're sorry, you're still clay throughout all of those things. And trying to separate yourself from that fact is one of the problems. Am I, am I correct? That, yeah. That was, Things. Yeah. So that's, that's a really important one that gave me a lot to think about too. Um, that, that idea that we have these compartments when actually even within those compartments, we're still us, right? As mm-hmm. much as we want to compartmentalize, it's still us and it's always happening at the same time. Um, so I just thought that was really interesting and I don't want to forget to bring this up. I mean, I don't think I would have forgotten, but the four, um, what we had talked about, what you had outlined for me before. Mm-hmm. Um, the four aims. Four aims of life. Yes. Um, Could you uh, unpack that for everybody? And and I feel like those are really interesting too. Sure. And that's a way of kind of looking at, okay, well, how do we deal with the pursuit? Because while I'm saying, you know, take a moment and acknowledge and recognize every day, at least once a day, right? To uh, digest, taste and digest that, the little taste of experience that we get, that you are that consciousness. And when we recognize that, then then the gains and losses of life are less impactful at the psychological level, um, even though we have to deal with them. Um, But at the same time, then how do we deal with the reality that we do have to pursue things at some time? And that's a natural part of life. That life doesn't just mean, you know, what I'm saying is don't just walk around like a zombie (laughs) that's going, 
it's all a consciousness. I am, I am, I'm clay. <laughs> That's not the purpose, as you said, because that, that would create more of that split. That's not dealing with the realities of life. So we simultaneously are um, acknowledging that and doing pursuit where pursuit is necessary because it is a natural uh, part of life. So, um, Yeah, I'm trying to think of the best way to go with this. So, because <laughs> I just thought it was so interesting, and it really helps paint a picture for um, for different minds to be able to relate. I feel like there are, there's more uh, surface on which people can find some, um, you know, a bit of grasp or something that could resonate with them when we come at it from different angles. And you've you've come at it from all these different angles, and I think it's so helpful. So. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, so let's just dive right in. So <laughs> while the, yeah, while the Vedic tradition says everything that is, is consciousness, including every aspect of your life, there's no part of it that is not that divine primordial presence. So because of that, then we honor all of life. And in looking at life, one of the things that the Vedic tradition does so um, exquisitely is actually sort of look at life in a kind of a categorized way that helps us organize things in our mind so that we can deal with it. Like when your house is a mess and you sort of just can't deal with anything, um, or let's say you were handling your kitchen, you wouldn't like mix up cups, food, plates, forks all on one shelf, we organize things. And so the Vedic tradition does that with everything. How can we organize things and it becomes more functional and we can handle life uh, with, more, with more grace and ease and simplicity. So one of those systems of categorization is called in Sanskrit, it's purushartha. Purushartha, we can simply call in English the four aims of life or the four goals of life. So what this does is it says, Every life has a supreme purpose, which is to recognize the self of the self as consciousness itself, okay? But at the relative level, we have, a, we have relative uh, aims, goals, that are a natural part of life that we all must pursue. And we have to fulfill them. So one of those goals, I'll just list them. The first one is called artha in Sanskrit, and it means security. It's the pursuit of feeling safe and secure. That means, you know, a roof over your head and food on the table enough to eat and a body that feels safe and a mind that feels safe and secure. So artha is security. We all have a requirement to feel secure. That's natural and necessary in life. And some of our actions and some of our thoughts are devoted to that the pursuit of security. Okay? Mm -hmm. The next one is Kama. Kama, people might know that word from Kama Sutra, which is a yogic text on Kama. Kama means pleasure. So the next aim is pleasure. Every, every living thing pursues pleasure and has a requirement to fulfill pleasure, enjoyment. And that means something different for everyone. What is pleasure for one person is not pleasure for another person. So whatever pleasure means for you, and how much of a requirement you have for it will vary from person to person, but we all in some way pursue pleasure and must fulfill it. Then we have dharma. Dharma is a big subject. It means lots of different things. So uh, it essentially means um, cosmic order. 
Um, here, in terms of the four aims of life, we can say that dharma means it's kind of twofold. We all pursue what we can call alignment with cosmic order, and that includes um, ethics, morals. Um, it also dharma also includes sort of um, spiritual activities, so the the responsibility requirement to fulfill. Uh, religious obligations if you're born into a religion or spiritual practice for its own sake. Um, duties falls into dharma and um, yeah, being ethical and also your individual sense of purpose. Okay, so alignment with natural order, uh, alignment with individual purpose, ethics and morality, and sort of spiritual religious duties. That falls into dharma. Kind of that's a, that's the biggest of the four in terms of complexity, and the final one is moksha, and moksha means liberation. Moksha is that more supreme goal of life, um, which is ultimate liberation, the recognition of the self of yourself, that limitlessness. That's moksha. But in a small way, moksha can also mean spaciousness. So a sense of having enough space elbow room and that's different for different people some people don't need a lot of elbow room and some people require a lot right some people live in apartments some people live on multiple acres so moksha can mean ultimate liberation it also can mean space so these four security pleasure um, purpose and duty and then liberation and a sense of spaciousness or space Everything we do and every thought we have, the Vedic tradition says, falls into one of these categories. And so you could even try to think right now of, a, of, think of, think a thought or think of something that you've done and see if you can think of anything you've thought or done that doesn't fall into one of these four. Right. So, this kind of puts us a little bit at ease, first of all, about our lives, that we are meant to pursue these things and there's no guilt. There's no shame in it. As long as you're not causing harm, which is dharma, as long as you're not violating dharma in pursuit of security and pleasure and space or liberation, then go for it, right? And in fact, if you have a deficit of one of these things, that's going to cause inner conflict. If you have um, I have a teacher's sangha, a teacher group that, I, that we get together monthly and we explore different things and they ask questions and so on. And this last one was a couple days ago and I had everyone go around and share what they're doing lately to fulfill their requirement for comma for pleasure. That was a very fun conversation. <laughs> and then we also looked at, does anyone have a deficit? Are you having a pleasure deficit? And you'll know when that's happening. It will cause a mental disturbance, an inner disturbance, relational disturbance, or maybe we try to pursue one of the other aims when what we really need is pleasure, right? So we look at these and we say, it is not only okay to pursue these, it's a natural requirement of life. You must pursue these to some degree and everyone else must have the right to pursue these as well. And no one should violate dharma or cause harm to anyone or anything in the manifestation in pursuit of these things. Um, and how each of us satisfies these things is going to be different from person to person because we're all individuals. Um, 
So it, it, it allows us to pursue these things and it helps us realize when we're having conflict, inner conflict, interpersonal conflict, that it often has to do with a deficit of one of these. That's really interesting. Yeah. And that's really interesting to think about even for clinicians listening, like the way that we approach things or the way that we talk to our clients and to think, or even the way we are just as humans, the way we think about things. I think it's nice to relieve a lot of the pressure and the shame and the guilt that we can often put on ourselves if we look at it this way, you know, and it's, and it makes sense. And I think that order that you were saying about organizing things like, you know, so that they make sense for us. Uh, I think that that one is, is pretty, is pretty uh, helpful for people. I think that that makes, that makes sense, but it's also so large. There's also so much to explore in each one. You know, it might have been just four things that you said, but <laughs> like four things, but it's, or four parts to that, but there's so much in each one, right? Like it's an entire existence in those four things. It's an entire life, which I find so fascinating. I love that part of, um, uh, I don't think anybody was thinking that there was this much to yoga or, or, or Vedic <laughs> philosophy. I think everyone's like, whoa, so this is yoga? <laughs> frame one of the frames yeah <laughs> and i don't think anyone's ever going to look at a cup the same way <laughs> um, but no that made so much sense i'm still listening to all of this thinking like wow i don't even think i have had enough time to go with this like to to study this or to understand this in my mind to even say anything that's helpful at this point <laughs> I, I think um two things one is that i could give sort of a, a very practical simple example of the four and how they work together and then maybe we could do something experiential with it yeah sure so um we can look at the four the four exist in everything so this is kind of fun because we have cycles within cycles in other words you're like it's so big it's all of life is contained in these four yeah. and we could play with these endlessly in a sense. And that is what that is life. We're playing with these endlessly. <laughs> and if we didn't fulfill, if we have a, you know, an art of deficit in this life, then we come back next time and we fulfill it hopefully. So it is kind of endless and big. So let's make it a little less vast and think about food. So think about a, a, a plate of food, like your, um, your main meal of the day. Your main meal of the day has to satisfy all four. Okay. So there has to be artha, there has to be security. What does that mean? It means that the meal should be um, fulfilling the goal of health of the body, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be nourishing to the body. That is, that is literal biological security, right? That nourishment factor has to be in the food. So the nourishment factor of the food, that's fulfilling artha. But you don't just want, like you could have, plain brown rice and plain beans and that would fulfill a nourishment faculty you know uh requirement but there's no pleasure in it you would have to sort of force it down no salt right no spice no oil so then what we do is we want to bring comma on board we want pleasure so it has to taste good okay and it should look appealing that's also pleasure right. so that's fulfilling the pleasure principle of your food and then there's dharma how do we fulfill dharma with your food? Well, there's lots of different ways to look at that. We could think about, does, did the meal that I'm eating cause any unnecessary harm? Unnecessary harm, you know, because even if you're eating a carrot, you've got to kill the carrot. So the, I'm saying unnecessary harm, all right? Um, 
that's one way of looking at dharma in the meal. Another way to think of it is, is this meal appropriate for my constitution at this time of my life in this season? Is it aligned with cosmic order? Okay. In other words, I would say Ayurvedically, if you live in uh, a cold, damp climate and it's the middle of winter, probably a mango smoothie uh, is out of order. Okay. Right. You want so that's another way to think about fulfilling dharma. Is this meal in cosmic order appropriate for my body constitution, my locale, and so on? And then finally, moksha means space. It means you don't fill so much your, your stomach till there's no space left whatsoever, in which case you can't digest. In order to digest, you have to have some space in your stomach. So that's a way to think about the space okay. moksha. Okay. So just kind of bringing it down to something a little simple and practical. No, I really like that. And I mean, no, and first of all, it wasn't even to, 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 um, to say that it, I couldn't understand it. I actually loved how vast it was and how, yeah. how endless and limitless it was when you explained it. But also, thank you for offering that because I think that that's definitely more tangible and it helps you know, paint, paint a picture. And I, again, I don't feel like anyone's going to be doing things the same way anymore. <laughs> I know I won't. <laughs> these things really stick with me. They really, really do. And then I find myself doing it and I find myself paying attention and thinking, okay, so, you know, what's, what am I doing? I mean, I think this is also the practice of mindfulness, they say, right? Like to try to not take five minutes out of the day to be mindful, but rather incorporate it into your life as a lifestyle, right? That's a really hot topic right now. Um, right. But, you know, it, it's a bit more like that, like really making it part of your lifestyle rather than, okay, let me practice mindfulness for five minutes in the morning, which is okay when we're, we're taking baby steps and whatever, but trying to incorporate it. I feel like this, everything you've explained today is a way to really incorporate, if you want to, incorporate these practices and these considerations in your everyday life in a way that it's not like, let me take time away from what I'm actually doing to see if this is pleasurable, right? It's more like, okay, yeah. so what am I doing is it pleasurable kind of thing. I find it incorporates uh, everything to, in my yes. opinion. This is, I love this. This is, this is sort of, a, this is a big part of my sense of purpose is to help clarify this for people because it's not about taking time out in order to do mindfulness or, you know, do spirituality, whatever that means. It is right there in the midst of your life while you're doing it. So in other words, like a lot of people in the yoga world are sort of money averse, right? Like, oh, I don't want to talk about money. I don't want to talk about, you know, in the, in the spiritual world. But if we instead frame it as artha, well, you have to have security. That is a natural part of life. And if you are ignoring that, you are ignoring something that's very fundamental to life. And artha itself is, is clay, right? It is made only of consciousness. And so then we can play with it and we can fulfill it and we can make effort in pursuit of those things that we're meant to pursue. But there, there's ease in the effort because it's not being compulsive about it, yes. right? You're not being driven by self-interest and self-concern and insecurity. You're just being driven by this is a natural pursuit of life. I have a responsibility to fulfill these life requirements as long as I'm not causing harm. And then you can go for it. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love hmm. that. No, that makes that, no, it all makes so much sense. Not that I was thinking it wouldn't make sense, but it's just so beautiful the way it, 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 it was, you laid it out so beautifully. I think it's, it's so aligned. It just feels super aligned. And, uh, and it gives me a lot to think about kind of one of those episodes you listen to on repeat, you know? 
Mm. Um, and you just keep listening to it all the time. <laughs> I love it. I mean, I keep teaching these things over and over again, and I keep listening to it over and over again, because it is, again, that goes back to, um, you said, well, how do, how do we sort of bring this into our lives in a practical way? And that's mm. what I was saying. You know, part of it is actually literally to just hear these kinds of explanations and hear this viewpoint over and over again, because we've heard the other viewpoints over and over again on repeat, right? Whatever we inherited from our parents and our ancestors and society, we're getting that messaging on repeat over and over again. We're eating a diet of all of that. And so to listen to and contemplate this kind of a viewpoint we have to do it over and over again because the other framework is, is so, has such a stronghold on us. So I love having these kinds of things on repeat. And these sort of, these are powerful teachings, but they're also relatively simple and um, because, it's, because it is what it is, because it's, you know, it's a teaching about your life. So in that sense, it's, it is simple. And it's good to start in a simple way. Don't start with the biggest things of your life and go, you know, the most griefs and difficult thing of my life and say, but everything is consciousness or the biggest, you know, challenge in terms of, you know, comma, like if somebody has some kind of say, um, you know, sexual dysfunction and they're having a pleasure deficit because of that aspect of life. Okay. That may be something that can be dealt with in a myriad of ways, but Let's see if we can, in the meantime, fulfill the pleasure requirement in another way, in a simple, start in an easy, accessible way with all of these things. And then it starts to become more accessible in other ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I could not agree more. And I think with anything in life, starting with the hardest thing, even with a loving kindness meditation, you're not starting with that difficult person right away. You're first trying to find those feelings or that, that, that messaging or that story, like a new type of feeling in your body and in your mind, and then you're dealing with or thinking of a more difficult person. You know, I mean, that, that's just one thing, but you know, I, with anything in life, we start, we start small so that it makes more sense. Even with stretching, like sometimes that's more tangible. I use this example sometimes. If you're going to stretch, let's say you want to get your hands to the floor. Okay, now this goes against what we've been talking about. <laughs> I, and I, re I recognize that, but let's just say you wanted to get your hands to the floor and in a forward fold, you know, um, you're not just going to like tear your hamstrings to get to the floor. You're going to stretch and eventually get your hands to the floor. It's like that with anything, with dealing with healing, dealing with emotions, dealing with um, loss, grief, you know? Um, so, yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the ways that I think about it is we try to, we try to fill up and gather, gather goodness and gather virtue and start in easy, simple ways first. And that makes us more resilient and more fulfilled. And then we can approach the really challenging, difficult things um, from that place instead of starting, as you're saying, with the hardest. <laughs> you're yeah. doing loving kindness. You don't start with your most difficult relationship. You yeah. just sort of gather the virtue in the places that are already somewhat useful and gentle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I just want, I mean, I think at this point, everyone's like, where is this woman who is going to change my life? <laughs> um, so, if I, I, so if people do want to connect with you um, and find you, what do you have going on right now? I know you had mentioned some things that you have going on in group and this and that, but um, if you could just explain that again to people and where they can find you, I'll also add this into the show notes. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, 
So um, the way you can find me online is my website is yogawithkaya.com, all spelled out, yogawithkaya, K-A-Y-A.com. And there you can find all online programs and offerings. Um, and some of the things that I'm doing is that I have an annual yogic philosophy program, really gets into all the things that we were talking about today and so, so much more, really both the mystical and the practical designed for people that are living a life of responsibility. And I teach that program every year and um, it always starts in mid to late July and we do six weeks on, six weeks off, six weeks on, six weeks off. So it, we take a number of months to go through that program so we can digest and be together. And so that happens online annually. And then I also have a bunch of little mini courses that I teach throughout the year just so people can have a taste and feel supported. So from Sanskrit and mantra classes to storytelling um, that kind of give us this sort of uh, teachings in a story way um, to what else? I have a class coming up on the uh, on what is karma, demystifying karma, which is a wonderful uh, way to kind of have a new viewpoint on life. And then I have an online yoga studio. So you can practice this form of yoga with me in which we release and soften and decompress the spine and let go. And it's all threaded with yogic teachings. And um, so that's my online yoga studio, which is called Shri Studio. And the other place to connect with me, which is where we connected, I think, is on Instagram. And I'm on Instagram by my name, Kaya Mindlin. And I try to put a good amount of content up there that gives some, you know, tastes of these teachings and what it is for me to live a yogic life with my two very active, very demanding young children. <laughs> oh, I love following you. I always love seeing your content. I really do. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So there you can go and hear my yoga rants and see me doing mantras with my kids and all kinds of things. Yeah. Kaya, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have been able to have this time with you. And, uh, and I hope that you can come back on again one day if you want to. I would love to. This was such a pleasure. And I really love all the things that you're putting out there in the world to people that very practical and so helpful to for people's minds and lives. So thank you so well much. <laughs>